Tennis is one of the most popular sports around the world, and there are plenty of people out there betting on it. This podcast gives you an edge over the market thanks to in-depth analysis from our expert guests. Welcome to Advantage Betters. Hello and welcome to Advantage Betters. We have got a very special episode today because I've got a guest that I'm really excited to be chatting to. Joining me today is someone who knows a, a thing or two about tennis. It's seven-time Grand Slam winner, Mats Villander. How are you, Mats? I'm good, Ben. I'm very good. Very excited that uh, uh, the uh, 2021 season is about to kick off in Australia. That's it. First Grand Slam of the year. It's it's exciting times, but um, we've chatted a, a few times before, and I know you've written plenty of articles for Pinnacle, and um, this is, is something a little bit different that we haven't done before. I've got a few topics that I, I'd like to cover off, and obviously you've got some very unique insight into to what it's like to play tennis at the very top level, and hopefully our, our viewers can learn, learn a little bit more about maybe how the players are feeling and, and what might be impacting their performance, and, and ultimately for them, who might appeal in the in the betting markets but the first question that I want to ask you is what is it like at the the start of the season when things are about to get underway obviously as fans we're incredibly excited about what what's to come and I know we've had a couple of 250 tour events and the the ATP cup but this is obviously the big one the first big one of the year so when you're in your playing days and you're you're ready for the first slam talk us through the what that actually feels like yeah, so usually um, most players arrive with, they're not too tarnished from the season before because uh, usually November is pretty quiet, December is completely quiet, and then maybe we would have played one or two tournaments before the Australian Open. So most players, uh, yes, you can come with a lot of confidence because you've built up your confidence over the last few years, but a lot of players come fresh. Uh, they call it the happy slam for, for that reason, that players come and they're fresh because they've gone through the preseason, they're, they're, the scars from last year are gone. Uh, and uh, but, but at the same time, no one is really uh, as prepared for the Australian Open because they haven't played enough matches or the same number of matches. Maybe that's one reason why, for example, Rafa Nadal has only won one Australian Open. He needs matches, for example. Uh, but it, it is exciting for the players. It's so fun because you are starting with a clean slate. Uh, and, uh, and again, it, it, if you have a, a good sort of past and you have one, you come with a lot of confidence. If you had a horrible year, the year before, uh, then you, you feel like, okay, this is going to be my year. So I think that the, 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 a lot of upsets uh, are possible at the Australian Open. Um, some of it because players are fresher than they normally are. And some of it because um, some of the best players might not um, have that confidence from having won a lot of matches the last two or three months leading up to it. And one of the... I know you, you've been there and done it quite literally, but one of the things I guess you haven't experienced is, is what the people on the tour have gone through sort of last year with so many events being wiped out and stuff like that. So do you think there's, is there any potential advantage to, to on the men's side, the ones that were going through to sort of the, the ATP finals and stuff like that, maybe getting a little bit more competitive tennis under their belt? Or, or do you think everyone's heading into this on a, on a level playing field? 
I don't think it's level uh, at all. Um, I guess you can go through the the winners, um, especially on the men's side, a little bit on at the Australian Open. Novak Djokovic, of course, has won eight times. Uh, what's his playing style? Doesn't make any mistakes. Uh, it will play the same in his sleep. Uh, Andre Agassi won it four times. Same thing. Same playing style. Doesn't move. It didn't move as well, but could hit the tennis ball in his sleep. Didn't need to be that sharp. Uh, I won it three times. Uh, same thing. Didn't miss that much. Uh, didn't have to. Uh, never really didn't. Never trained. I always trained pretty hard, uh, but I was always kind of at the same level. So I think the Australian Open is a is a tournament where if you are mentally stable then you have a really good chance uh, to play there. So I think that a lot of players are going to suffer because they are not able to prepare the way that uh, they feel they have to. I'm not sure it's true that they do, but they if they don't get their, their reps in, they lose a little bit of confidence. And therefore, and I think last year is a perfect example of that, uh, who, were the, who were the dominant players last year? Nadal and Djokovic and Dominic Thiem. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Daniel Medvedev uh, come out and uh, on the men's side and, and won the ATP final. So the best players in the world get even better when the circumstances are tricky. Uh, and I think the Australian Open over the years have shown that. And I think that this year is going to be very similar to that. So while there is a chance that a Rafa or a Novak has an off day or a Serena Williams or Naomi Osaka, uh, there's a chance because they haven't practiced as much as they, uh, they ha- uh, want to. I think mentally these these players are so strong and it's really like you and me, Ben, here looking at each other and saying, am I going to lose to this guy? No, I'm not. Okay, I hate losing more than you. So you're not beating me, especially when it's five sets. So I think it does doesn't favor it favor the top players is the wrong word, but I do think that they will be able to deal with the circumstances much better than the lower ranked players. And one of the, the other things sort of feeding into the event is the fact that Unfortunately, we've all experienced what it's like to to be locked indoors and stuff over the last couple of over the last sort of year and specifically the last couple of months, depending on where you are. But obviously what they've had to do going over to Australia is the the isolation and the quarantining and everything like that. So is there anything that that kind of you look to for players in that the the idea of sort of things falling into place and things beginning to click is do you think that those those top level guys because of maybe the teams they have around them or, or the setups that they're they're doing their quarantine in it's going to be easier for them to adapt straight away I do think so yeah I mean it's tennis is a very unfair sport in in the, at the highest level obviously uh, you know the guys Novak Roger who's not there unfortunately we don't get to see Roger Federer this time but but the best players in the world uh, they they are playing on the center court or court one at worst, and they're always playing at a good time. They always play about the same time every match. It's sort of four or five o'clock in the afternoon or it's an evening session, and they have earned that right to be there. And I think the same thing happened with the preparation here. Those guys went to Adelaide. Naomi Osaka went to Adelaide as well, and they played an exhibition in front of a full house there. So they got some good matches there. Uh, and, and in a way, they were out of the room, I believe, more than other players. But that's the way it is in an individual sport. It's it's unfair, uh, and they've gone through the uh, uh, ringer to get to that point. So uh, I think again, they are able, they are better at dealing with circumstances like these. Now I have to say, and uh, sort of from personal experience, I don't think anyone really knows uh, where 
where everybody is in their head uh, in terms of the mental stability. I do think that a lot of players, which I noticed during the French Open and the US Open, they were very happy to be out there and they felt fortunate that they were be able they were able to play professional tennis for a living again when a lot of people weren't able to go back to work. But at the same time, has it taken the edge off of their competitiveness a little bit? And and who has it who has it affected? Does it affect Nick Curious, who's a showman? Has it affected him more because he loves to play in front of people, uh, or has it affected uh, the guy that um, you know he needs to play a lot of matches all the time every week? He needs to play. I mean, I don't really know, but I do think that a lot of players are gonna uh, not feel up for up to it as much as they have in the past and some other players are going to feel hey this is not the end of the world if i lose this match which makes them play better so therefore i think there's a big chance of upsets but in the end i think we're going to see familiar faces winning both the women and the men yeah and i think the it's, it's interesting you mentioned there's sort of psychological element that that goes into it and now there's there's so much focus on it for the players i mean the teams they've got around them and i'm sure the likes of djokovic have got at least one sort of psychologist helping him with the the mental side of the game was that was there much focus on that when when you were playing was it was it as big of a, a concern back then as it is now it wasn't really because um, it's changed a lot with the equipment for sure. I mean, it's changed. First of all, it's changed with the prize money. Um, you know, in in the go back to the sixties, they did not ha- couldn't afford to to have a coach. The Australians with Rod Laver and Ken Roseville and I mean, they had maybe Harry Hopman, uh, a very famous uh, Davis Cup captain back then. Um, and then who was the next? Bjorn Borg started traveling with a full time coach, and that's we're not talking mid seventies, but that was it. That coach was also giving Bjorn massages i had a full-time tennis coach for for three or four years i then had a full-time tennis coach and a physical so i think that the money has uh uh increased so much that players can afford to have them that's the first thing the second thing i think is that they that we in the past didn't hit the ball as hard we didn't have the 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 ammunition or the weapon in our hand with those rackets so it became more mental and every game was sort of a chess game so mentally i felt like we were as strong uh, in the past, and I think mentally, tennis players have been as strong. Every generation is as strong. Uh, the, I bet you the forty, the generation in the forties, fifties, and the as strong as today's players. Physically, there is a massive difference. Physically, they're much stronger. They're faster. Um, I, I maybe stamina. They're not better because they don't play as long at rallies as we used to. But so I think they need mental. Uh, coaching way more than we did and I think physically everyone is so good that the edge could be that little bit of mental toughness at a a very crucial point Uh, because I used to play matches where every point was a mental uh, strategic uh, sort of battle and and then you have guys uh, like Novak Djokovic. Yeah, there are points when he's very smart and plays uh, tactical tennis. But there are a lot of points where serve, return, miss, serve, return, miss. And it's even on the women's game. So there are a lot of points that you can't do anything about anymore. In my day, you could be in every single point. So I think the mental part is, is much, much different today. Well, I mean, mental fatigue is is obviously one thing, but another thing that that certainly betters might be looking for in terms of a potential angle is is 
people that might be set up to play well, but are ultimately undone by fatigue, be it in one single match or just later on in the tournament. So as, as someone who's who's been in those five set thrillers and, and really sort of gone to war with someone else on the tennis court, what are what are kind of the early signs that fatigue is is settling in? And, and I guess what is the if you're a player, what how do you try and avoid fatigue when you're out there on the court? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, the only way to avoid fatigue is to be so much better than your opponent that you can actually let him take the second set because he got lucky and he broke me early and then you got to let him go because you can't, there's no point in fighting back. You won the f- first set 6-2, 6-3 and you're down 5-2 before you know it or 4-1 and the guy's got a big serve and then somehow you got you to gotta keep your game alive but you kind of have to you're not going to give him the set, but you're not going to waste any energy. But you have to be so much better than your opponent to be able to do this safely. Uh, and I think that's what that's why the three out of five set tournaments uh, on the men's side, it's so difficult to beat Rafa and, and in the past, Roger and Novak and now Dominic Team and Daniel Medvedev. I mean, these are like four or five marathons in a row. So that's, that's why it's hard. And the second thing I think is, uh, the one thing I worry the most is injury because guys are going to come out there. They're going to be so keen to play and, and they're going to push themselves. And I don't think that there is one single player in either the women's or the men's draw that is a hundred percent as prepared for this tournament as they were for the Australian Open last year. And and where does it show up? It shows up in the level of their of their tennis somehow. But it shows up more in terms of injury, in terms of how you feel the next day. So it's going to be crucial for the players to know when to let go and when to chase the guy down. And that's going to be relevant when you're you're in Australia and and normally it's a slam that the weather is is so important because of the heat mm. now it's it's actually taking place a little bit later this year, which kind of means that the the conditions are a little bit cooler, but. Again, someone you, you've been out there, you've been in the heat. What what is it like to to kind of play in those conditions, and and how does how would the weather kind of affect the way you play or, or the way you approach a game? Yeah, so it's an interesting combination the weather down in Australia because the the, the I play the legends doubles the last few years, and I find that the courts are much quicker there than they are at the U.S. Open. Obviously, they're both hard courts, but they're much quicker. Um, so the bounce and the ball, it, it skids through the court. Now, add the temperature to that, um, and it's warmer than at the U.S. Open. doesn't have the same humidity, but it's definitely warmer on average or normally. Maybe this time the two weeks makes a little bit of a difference for sure. But that makes the ball that is made mainly out of rubber, we know what happens to rubber in the heat, it's it sort of it, it gets explosive and that goes faster. So now take that fast court and that faster ball and you get a fast surface that uh, if you spin it, it bounces high. And if you hit it flat, it skids through the court. Uh, Nadal has a problem there, not when it's hot, but he has a problem when it's a little colder. So when it is a little colder, the ball tends to be a little heavier. But it still skids through the court. Perfect for somebody like Novak Djokovic. Uh, and uh, him playing at night is very, very difficult to beat in five sets. So it is, it is a tough situation. We also know that Melbourne uh, have the worst weather forecasters in the world. And they actually admit to it. Best ones are apparently in Las Vegas because it's always uh, 85 Fahrenheit and sunny. Uh, and in Melbourne, it could literally be 12 degrees centigrade and raining. Uh, 
uh, in February, and, and it can be 37, 38, 40 degrees, and that could be in a span of sort of 25, 24 to 36 hours. So it's very hard. To, you have to be really ready to play uh, in windy conditions, cold conditions, and then the next day, oh, my God, it's, you know, we might have a heat rule in effect. And I think that's one of the toughest things about playing in Australia is you're not really sure what you're going to encounter in terms of the weather. And that affects the bounce and the speed of the court. Well, you mentioned there that it could could sort of play into Djokovic's hands when he, especially when he's playing in the evening. So, is there is that because of the, the the way he hits the ball? Is it because of the defensive style? Like, what what sort of what sort of style of player are we talking about when we look to the the weather and the court speed in Australia that that could help them out? Yeah, exactly. So Djokovic has a perfect style because uh, he can stay close to the baseline, which you can on a faster court. Because if the if the ball if the ball skids through the surface more than it grips and kicks up like it does in a clay court, when it skids through the surface, you can be closer to the baseline, which is where Novak likes to hang out, which is where Andre Agassi won four times like to hang out as well. Uh, so. Um, and then Novak has this backhand that is kind of flat when he wants to, and that ball skids through the court. And, and even if it, does, it doesn't hit it harder than somebody like Rafa's forehand, it's in a more effective shot because it skids through the court. Now, the, the shot that doesn't work in these uh, in these conditions or doesn't do anything is actually Rafa's forehand. I mean, it's still one of the best shots in uh, in the world, uh, even on this court. But comparably, what it what his for what it does when he plays on a clay court or a slow hard court, it's a huge difference in the height of the balance on his, uh, with his top spin on the forehand. So that, that it kind of neutralizes somebody who spins the ball. Um, you got a big serve, then you can slice the serve and you don't have to go for big aces, but you can slice it. And with the side spin, the ball hits the court and it takes the other player out of, uh, out of the uh, court and then obviously opens up the other side. So yes, it does favor a guy that plays close to the, close to the baseline, hits the ball a little bit flatter, um, it's an interesting though because it, players are very used to in Australia specifically in having a huge Serbian contingent, a huge Croatian contingent, and they're coming. Yes, I know that there are a lot of uh, uh, different nationalities that are in uh, Melbourne that live there, but there's also a lot of people that come from overseas to this tournament, and obviously they're not going to be there. So it'll be interesting to see what the fans, how they react to some of these top stars because they, you know, they live in Australia and are they rooting for the Australians or are they going to root for, uh, I'm not sure. So that'll be an interesting uh, side to it. So I think the Australians are going to do very well. Yeah, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's something like 10,000 spectators are going to be there. And interesting that you mentioned there, this idea of home advantage, because that's betters on on other sports, specifically soccer and and NFL and things like that. Home advantage is massive. But for someone who who played tennis, where you're traveling all around the world and you're playing at these different events, like is there there much in that sort of, whether it's playing in your home country or or the impact that the fans have on you as a player? What is that like? Do Do you kind of take things up a notch, do you think, when you're getting cheered on? I think so. Yes, I definitely think so. I think you take it up a notch when you're cheered for, and I think you take it up a notch when they're clearly only cheering for your opponent as well, uh, because you like to uh, sort of break everybody's heart when that happens. But I do think so. But I think that you find, uh, I think how it goes in tennis is you find a, a spot or facility if it's indoors or location 
that you like to play in. Uh, you like the surface, you like the city, you, you like the stadium, and then you do well. Now you do well, you're going to get the fans on your side. So that's why we have so many tournaments that are won by the same player. Nadal's won 13 French Opens. Uh, Roger Federer, I believe it's nine Wimbledons. That Novak Djokovic, eight to stay no, because they like the courts, they like the conditions. Uh, and then the fans get behind because they don't want to be heartbroken. So they tend to root for the favorite. So yes, it does make a huge difference for sure. Um, but uh, at the same time, this is going to be very different with a different crowd, way less people. So, um, I mean, does it help the, the lower ranked players to not play in front of uh, sort of 15, 16,000 people? We know that Novak Djokovic at the US Open sort of lost his uh, cool because he hit a ball into the side of the court first, didn't get a warning, which he would have if there was people sitting there. And then the po- point after that, of course, he got upset because he got he, he didn't break serve he, or he got broken against Karenio Busta. And then he sort of hit that ball behind him, hit the, the line umpire in the throat, and then he got defaulted. So um, in that situation, I think the top players... Yeah, they, they don't really care, but I do think they they deal with the people being there in a much better way. They get the energy from the crowd. They understand uh, what the crowd can do to help them, whether they're playing bad or good. So, yeah, I think the crowd is a massive advantage to the to the higher, better player. And when you mentioned about sort of the the guys having their, their favorite surface to play on and, and stuff like that, obviously you, you do have surface specialists. Now, I don't... I don't think we could we could call you a specific surface specialist because you actually won a, a slam title on every single surface. But maybe you can talk about the the players that maybe if they do specialize in hard courts, if, if you're up against those players, like, for example, when you were playing, do you adapt your style in, in a certain way? Or, or if, if you know they're, they're really well suited, how do you then go about sort of taking them on and, and trying to dismantle them or, or disrupt them? Yeah, very good. Uh, again, are you a tennis player, Ben? Uh, no. <laughs> you told me once you played in public, uh, some of the public courts. In that's uh, it. Yeah, rec- recreational yeah. tennis. That's right. Yeah. No, that's such a good, though, good question. Seriously, because that's what Rafa Nadal is trying to do uh, against a Novak Djokovic in a hard court. That's why he's having problems. So how you deal with that is you're trying to to kind of take the ball out of the strike zone for somebody like Novak. So that means hit the ball with a little bit more spin so it bounces higher and then try to slice something that stays really low because what you don't want, you don't want Novak to just hit, hit shot after shot after shot from about waist high because then he never ever makes mistakes. And and that's kind of why Nadal is so good on clay because he doesn't really care if it's down by his, uh, by his ankles or if it's up above his head. Uh, whereas Novak is much better sort of between his chest uh, and and his knees, and and that's his strike zone. So uh, I think that's how you have to have to play. Uh, I think that's why the women, I believe, are much better hardcourt players than they are grass court or clay court because you, it takes a little more skill to play on grass and clay. Uh, a because the bounce is not as clean and predictable, and B because um, uh, the the spin takes more on an uneven surface like a clay court, of course, but even on a grass court. So here, uh, you you are uh, the best hardcore players all, have also unbelievably good eyesight. I've realized uh, because they take the ball on the rise, so they stand so close to the baseline, they know how exactly how the ball is going to react off of the court because it's so perfect these courts that it doesn't matter what kind of spins coming at them, they can calculate or their eyes can see that and they can hit every single shot in the middle of the racket, and that's impossible come Wimbledon or the French Open. But here, 
because it's faster, it's very true. And that's the problem um, that most players will have against somebody like Novak Djokovic. Now, last thing about that. Most players today are hardcore specialists. They're not big fans of clay courts. So they're definitely not big fans of grass courts. And they kind of grow up playing on a hard court indoors. Uh, they want to play on hard courts outdoors. It's easier to get good on a hard court. You, it, it's better for your confidence. So I think the two hard court tournaments is where you see uh, the best tennis in terms of ball striking. Tactically, maybe where you see the least uh, interesting tennis compared to clay and grass. Okay. And um, if, if we talk about then sort of specific players for, for this event, there's a long tennis season ahead of us, but people out there would have already done their research and thought about who they think is going to win and who might be overestimated, who might be underestimated. But, but for you, is, the, is there anyone, is there anyone out there that, that sort of might be flying under the radar at the moment at, at this event, do you think? I wouldn't say he's flying under the radar, but I do think that Dominic Team is going to end this year as number one in the world. Um, yeah, I do. I think that he took a step last year uh, that was huge. He should have won the Australian Open last year, beat Rafa Nadal in an unbelievable quarterfinals match. Uh, and then he should have beaten Novak in the finals. Uh, I think he lost 6-4 in the fifth, but he kind of ran out of gas. Won the US Open this year, should have won the ATP finals, uh, and lost to Dani Medvedev there, beat both Novak and Rafa in, in, along the way. Um, I do think that Dominic team has figured out that I can play with Novak and Rafa. I'm actually better than them in terms of hitting the ball. Obviously, mentally, he's not as strong because they won, what, 20 uh, for Rafa and 17 slams for Novak. So that builds a certain amount of confidence. But I think with them getting a little bit older, um, I feel like they are getting overpowered at times by certain players. And certainly when they play against Dominic team. He's the one that rules. So I think Dominic Team is the one that he, he's not flying under the radar because we're talking about him as one of the favorites. But I would like to think that uh, Dominic Team, this is his year to push those two guys aside. Um, and they might pick up a slam here and there. But I don't think that they uh, will be consistent enough the whole year or willing to play enough tournaments to stay at number one. Whatever it is, I think Dominic Team is seeing his chance and I feel like he's made that step and he's at least as good as those two. It's a, a bold statement, Matt. So hopefully the, the elite bracket at the top there does eventually get, get broken up and, and maybe we can speak to the traders at Pinnacle and see if there's a market available for, for Dominic Team to end the season as number one. He's, uh, he's actually the fourth favourite currently for, for the Australian Open. But then so the, the usual suspects then and, and someone like Djokovic, who we, we can't avoid talking about, but he's almost a 50% chance to, to win the event uh, according to Pinnacle's odds. And... He's no. He's one of, if not the greatest player of all time. That's a, a separate debate for a separate discussion, I think. But what are your chances of? What do you think his chances are of of winning the Australian Open this year? I mean, huge, I, I, absolutely huge. Obviously, um, he is he is the big favorite for sure. Um, he is fifty percent. Yeah, maybe. 
I do think that he knows that he's not that much better than Dominic Team anymore because Dominic Team rules against him these days. I think he knows he's not much better than Rafa Nadal <laughs> uh, if he's better. I think Rafa Nadal knows the same thing as well. I think they're all worried about Dominic Team. They're worried about these young guys coming up. I mean, uh, and I think a little bit of worry that means that they can't quite predict the path uh, to the title. I think Novak is there. I mean, he's so good. He, he, he obviously has prepared as good as well as he can. Now, how does last year sit with him, though, I guess? Because obviously the U.S. Open was a massive disappointment being ejected. Uh, French Open, he played okay, didn't play great in the semifinals. He was up two sets to love against Stefanos Tsitsipas. Let him come back. Maybe that's what made the difference. And then in the finals, really shocking uh, uh, performance by Novak against Rafa Nadal, who, of course, played an unbelievable uh, match and tournament. And then Novak, we thought, was going to turn it on and sort of win the ATP finals and, and got to the O2 arena and looked a little bit flat. So does it affect him, maybe, that he hasn't won a, a tournament, really, a big tournament since, uh, since the Australian Open? Might affect him a little bit, but I have a feeling he gets on that court and then suddenly, oof. Now, if there is no people or if it's very sparse, then I think that changes it a little bit for Novak because I think Novak likes the people maybe more so than a Rafa Nadal. I think Novak plays off the people. He, he's quite demonstrative in, in a, often a positive way, but he does definitely play off the people. And, and if there is nobody in the stands, uh, is he going to find joy in playing? I guess that's the big thing. But if there is a few people, I think that Novak will be, he'd be tough to beat. I would put the field against Novak and then it's 50-50. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? That that winning mentality and these guys that have won so many slams and someone yourself who singles-wise, I think it was seven seven Grand Slam titles, you, you, you can kind of go back there with confidence. And the flip side of that would then be for someone who hasn't broken that duck and, and got that first slam, how, how difficult do you think it is for them to actually, when they get to the semis or the final, whatever it might be, the, the pressure they're under to, to finally get that maiden win? I think that's, that is so tough because, um, you know, obviously Dominic Thiem won the US Open. Why? Because Nadal wasn't there and because Novak Djokovic was out. And then we saw what happened in those finals. Dominic Thiem played uh, Alexander Zverev and Zverev came out, played unbelievable for two sets. This match is over. No, not at all. Zverev started choking uh, big time. And team is still not playing great, but he's hanging in there. And in the end, it was an unbelievably entertaining final, intriguing final. But in terms of level, not very high. And there's no chance that those guys would have beaten Novak or Rafa or Roger Federer, for that matter, uh, in, a, in a Grand Slam final. So I think that that will give Novak and, and uh, Rafa a bit. Well, hold on a second. We saw how they played there when they trying to win the slam. Uh, if that's what they do, they're not going to beat us. But So I think it's tough. It's really tough. That's why it's so hard to win these days because they have won so much uh, since such a young age that you've always had to beat these guys too. And Andy Murray, you can throw him in there too. You have to beat three or four of these top four players. Uh, and it's tough. Uh, and um, I don't know. Daniel Medvedev, can he do it? Maybe. Maybe. I like the way he plays for sure. I like his mindset. But do they really believe that they can take out both Novak and Rafa? I don't, I don't think they do, and I don't think Novak and Rafa does for a split second. Uh, and if they do, they definitely refuse to let them know. But I, I do think they are getting closer physically, the younger generation. They are hitting the ball as hard, maybe harder. Uh, they're as strong, maybe stronger. Um, they can run as far, maybe further. 
Um, and of course, Novak's footwork in terms of flexibility and, and pre- precision in where he puts his feet is second to none. But I think they're getting overpowered at times, and I think that helps the locker room. But in the end, five sets, that's, that's, it's such a mental, tactical uh, <laughs> effort to try and hang with Novak and Rafa in these conditions. Well, then we've got the the last thing I just want to talk about, and it's kind of at the the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of dominance, in terms of the women's game. And the last few years, it's been wide open. I mean, it's literally like buy a lottery ticket trying to trying to predict the winner sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But I think we've had like Halep, Kvitova, they've they've had a good crack. The younger generation, Osaka, Barty, and and Sabalenka are, are looking good, but whether it's surface, I mean, you can you can obviously speak to it a little bit more than me. But but why why do you think we've seen so many women struggle to to take that mantle off Serena and really actually dominate the women's side of the game. Because I think you have to be a superstar to take a mantle from somebody and then dominate. And I think that in in the men's game, uh, we we had one superstar and it was Roger Federer. And then suddenly there's this freak lefty from Mallorca that suddenly, uh, for some uh, emotional reason, thought he could challenge the greatest player of all time. And then you have Mr. Rubberman Nova come in. And on the women's, so so these three guys, and now throw Andy Murray in the mix, I think these four, three, four, Babrinka, five, They've 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 held the level down on the men's side. Like they've squeezed them. Down. Listen, guys, you don't you can't come up here. The Marin Chilich, Kane Shikori, Milos Raonic, you can't come up here. We're on the top floor, and you're gonna have to be three or four of us to break through and get any kind of confidence. And we're not allowing that to happen. For Serena Williams, she's been fighting this battle on her own for the last six, seven years, because Maria Sharapova was there with her for a while. And then, of course, she had she didn't do much in the last four or five years. Her sister Venus, once in a while, sort of cropped up and did something, but um, not really. So Serena has been fighting this, this, this battle on her own. So I think the women's game has uh, developed uh, better in a better direction and faster in the last five, six years than the men's side. I really think that the, those four guys have have sort of suppressed the, uh, the rest of the field and Serena on her own hasn't been able to because right now you have some, you, ne- you mentioned them, but let's just go for Naomi Osaka. She serves as well as Serena Williams. She moves as well as Serena Williams. She hits the ball harder than Serena Williams. Uh, and, and that doesn't happen on the men's side. You know, these guys, and mentally I feel like they are not that worried about Serena Williams now she hasn't won in four years. Uh, that's big, and uh, I don't. I think that that's why they, they're just. Oh, I can win a major. I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to free wheel it. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to really fit, and I can win a major because I don't have to beat Serena number one, Serena number two, Serena number three, like on the men's side. And I think that's what you're seeing. So I don't think it's a sign of weakness by these players. I think it's just that they, everybody's getting so good and so strong. And I think the women, I mean, I, I mean, somebody's going to, uh, you know, uh, uh, kill me for this, Ben, for sure. But I do think always in, in women's tennis, they've always been a few years behind the men's game. And that's mainly for financial reasons that the men have been paid more money than the women. So they can they have been uh, they have been able to bring one coach one physical trainer, sometimes a physical therapist. And on the women's side, yes, they make the same money in the grandstands, but they don't make anywhere, anywhere close to what the men make on, the, on their WTA tour. Therefore, 
they can't bring these people with them. But now they are starting to understand the benefits of having uh, a masseuse and a physical trainer and, of course, a tennis uh, a coach as well. And you see the results. These, these women that are 18, 19, 20, I- Iga Sviatek that won the French Open, I mean, they're so good. They're so strong and they hit the ball so hard. So I think it's a sign of strength that we have different winners on the women's side. Yeah, and the last one, I mean, you mentioned Sviatek there, and we've got um, all of the names that that, w- that were previously mentioned, Osaka, Sabalenka, Barty, in this order, Sviatek, and then Halep in, in terms of the, the markets for the outright winner is there. I know it's difficult because you just said how unpredictable it is, but is there someone that jumps out to you sort of as, as potential that, that could really be the, the standout candidate? I think Ash Barty, I have to say. She hasn't been in quarantine. Um, she's been home in Australia. She hasn't played a match in a long time, but uh, she's, she, she's, you can always figure that out. You can play matches. You can, you can figure out competitive matches at home on the practice court, whatever. So I don't think that's a problem. I think if Ash Barty survives the first couple of rounds, and I'm, by surviving, I literally mean she just has to win those matches, gain a little bit of confidence and know that she's in it. Because the first two rounds are going to be, uh, they're going to be very nerve wracking for all the players. And especially for somebody like Ash Barty, who um, she should win another major soon. This year would be um, nearly a necessity if she's going to make a, a big mark on, on, the, on women's tennis. Uh, and uh, I think that the courts are quick enough where her backhand is a weakness, but because she has a really good one-handed slice backhand, she can use that on a faster court. She can keep the ball low. No one plays like her. Uh, and, and if some of these big ball strikers, you've mentioned Irina Sabalenka, for example, uh, huge ball striker, Naomi Osaka, huge ball striker, they need to hit a lot of tennis balls to hit the ball that clean. And they haven't because of the uh, quarantine and, and the situation that we've been in now for Jesus, for nearly a year. Uh, so they haven't really hit the many balls. And I think Ash Barty, this is her chance to win her, her Australian Open. And to me, I have to say, I think I have to put her as the number one favorite. I'm, uh, I'm looking at the time, Matt, and it's, it's absolutely flown by since we started chatting. We'll wrap things up. and it, look, it's, oh, been an abs- it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I'm, I'm sure you're very busy. I want to say a big, big thank no you uh, from me and the viewers for coming on and, and helping us learn a little bit more about playing the game at an elite level and, and how that can be maybe used to, to help people find an edge in the market. So, so thank you very much. Yeah, you could use that edge even on the public tennis courts in wherever you are. <laughs> thank you. Hey, Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show and we will have Matt's back again soon and you can you can have the chance to ask him some questions and get more insight into the life of a professional tennis player. We've got all the latest tennis odds on pinnacle.com. Good luck with your bets and remember to please gamble responsibly.